dark for us. You know, some people are going to follow Joseph Smith. Well, we're going to follow Jesus Christ, and we'll see where, where we end up from there. No, that's not what Christianity is like. This is a living hope that gives us true assurance of our faith. And so this morning, I'm going to read Psalm 34 in light of the truth of the New Testament. See, we have new revelation that even the author of this psalm, who we read as David, did not have. If you think of it as a timeline, you have David in the Old Testament putting his faith in a promise from God, a promised Messiah, whereas we are looking back now on the historical record and recognizing the truth of what Jesus accomplished already in history. In John 8, we read that Jesus said he was the light of the world. As believers, I think we can use this light as it shines back now on the Old Testament. I think that reading the text in light of the New Testament revelation will give us insights that were not even available to David, the author of the psalm. And I think as we do this, we will also recognize the unchangeable nature of the God who wrote this book. As we watch this new revelation build so consistently and complementary on the foundation of this Old Testament chapter. This is some of what we might call the internal evidences of the truth of the Bible. Because in order to know, really, that the Bible is the word of God, all you have to do, I mean, you can appeal to historical evidences and stuff, and that's important, but all you really have to do is read it and recognize the incredible nature of this book. Because as a narrative written over the course of so many centuries, we know that uh, the process must have been overseen by a transcendent author in order for it to come to us in such a cogent and harmonious way. Now, as we approach the text, I think in order to understand David's motive in writing the psalm, it is important that we understand the historical context in which it was written. Thankfully, you know, we're not left in the dark on this subject, and we're provided with it here at the top of the psalm. It says, Psalm 34, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out, and he went away. Okay, so now we know why he wrote it. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that's this little blurb at the top here is probably not very helpful to most of you in this room. But actually, it is very helpful to us because this refers to an event that is already recorded for us in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. It is referring to when David pretended to be insane in order to escape the clutches of King Achish of Gath. Can I have somebody... Read now 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Mr. Creed.
And we read that David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where presumably he might have written this psalm. Now, if we can get past the absurdity that's going on in this passage, we'll realize that the primary reason David found himself in the hands of Achish is because he was already fleeing from Saul. Saul had decided he wanted to kill David. So Jonathan helped David escape his clutches. Now the question you might be asking in this passage is, well, why was David in such hot water in Gath? Uh, What was so bad about the citizens of Gath realizing that David, King David, was in their midst? Well, let's put it this way. The most famous person in the whole Bible who we read is from Gath is the Philistine of Gath named Goliath. So at this point in his life, David has already killed Goliath. So he's already a villain in the town of Gath. Now, we can only speculate as to why David decided to flee to Gath. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't stupid, but it doesn't seem like a very good idea to us. I mean, maybe... Maybe he thought it would be the last place Saul would look or whatever. I don't know. Maybe he had a beard that he thought would now disguise him and he wouldn't be recognizable. Either way, we know that he was in trouble. And adding insult to injury, we read that in the passage prior to this one, David was carrying the sword of Goliath with with him, which he had used, of course, to cut off Goliath's head. So as if he wasn't already in trouble, now he has a big target on his back. I mean, what might this be equivalent to in our modern day? Well, I think, let's say the Michigan quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, walks onto the Ohio State campus wearing his game uniform just a few days after defeating Ohio State on the field. I'm sure, I mean, if you don't, If you know anything about college football, you would know that that would not be a warm welcome. But maybe you don't know anything about college football, so (laughs) for a political analogy. Let's say say Joe Biden walks into the Republican Party headquarters on November 11, 2020, wearing a t-shirt of the totals of the counted votes. can't even imagine what would ensue there. So David finds himself in a similar situation to this, I think. It doesn't matter which way David turns, he is going to face someone who's about to kill him. He turns back to Saul. Saul's waiting there with a sword. He stays here with Achish, and Achish is ready to kill him. Death is awaiting him at every turn. Now, can you relate to this type of situation? Have you ever been in a situation where it seems like no matter what decision you make, it's the wrong one? doesn't matter what your choices are. It's going to be a bad outcome. Where do we turn in, the, in these situations? I mean, maybe we 
feign insanity like David did, but where are we going to turn? Well, we're going to turn to Psalm 34, and we're going to see if we can find some answers. So can I have somebody, how about two people to read the psalm all the way through? One person to read verses 1 through 10, and then somebody else to read the rest of the psalm. 1 through 10. Somebody else? Okay, so what I want to do now is walk through the psalm for the first half here and read it as individual stanzas and try to pick out some of the insights of what David has to say. So I'm going to start off here in the first stanza, verses 1 through 3, in which David asks us to join him in blessing the Lord. Now first, we need to understand what David means when he says bless in this context because we throw that word around quite a bit too in our modern culture. I can tell you what David is not saying. He's not saying that, you know, God sneezed. He's not saying, you know, simply wishing God a blessed day or something like that. What he means is to bless is to speak a good word about somebody. The New International Version translates it as extol the Lord. And so, you know, when we speak highly of somebody we like, maybe our favorite actor or athlete or professor or something, we're blessing them. So that is what's going on here. David is asking us to join him in glorifying the Lord through words. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And while I'm sure that David would approve of gathering together as a body of believers as we are today, I think he would be greatly distressed if he heard that we left our praise at the door of the church on the way out. Surely David 
expects us to bless the Lord not only in the private sphere of church, but also in the public sphere, whether that would be for us education or our occupation or even our recreation. But that can be difficult in 2023 as we face more and more and more social pressure to keep our beliefs personal. And it can be so tempting at times because it's so much easier, you know, to keep our beliefs to ourselves. You know, if we're going to face ridicule for them or be laughed at or, you know, miss out on a job promotion or something. I think the Apostle Peter would be the first to tell us to heed David's remarks here in Psalm 34 as he knew all too well what it meant to deny the name of Jesus. Three times in that courtyard the night before Jesus' death, he denied that he even ever knew Christ. And this is the man to whom Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom, as it were. I mean, this is a, an important man in church history here. And we can hear Peter speaking through the New Testament as if to say, don't do as I did. He says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. He says, listen to David, what David has to say in Psalm 34. He says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so God's word comes full circle, and we're back here at Psalm 34. But let me ask you a question. How can we give a reason if we don't have any reason for our hope, or if we don't have any hope? And so the question that naturally follows this first stanza is, why? Why should we magnify the Lord with David? And why exalt his name? And David answers that for us in the next section here. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to, look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now this stanza, it reminds me of a time when I was young, I remember. I was laying in my bed at night trying to fall asleep. I don't know what was wrong, but you know, I couldn't fall asleep. You've all been there. I just kept tossing and turning all night and I couldn't relax. And the reason, and I, I eventually realized that the reason I couldn't relax is because my stomach was hurting. So I kept tossing and turning you know, for hours on, and hours until I eventually realized this isn't going away. I need to do something about this. So, you know, I was young. So I sat up in my bed and I said, Mom, <laughs> Mom. <laughs> and then my dad showed up at the door a few seconds later. <laughs> and then I remember... <laughs> I remember saying, I don't feel so well. And then I threw up all over the bed instantly. <laughs> and I don't remember much after that, but I remember my parents cleaned it up and I, they made me a new bed on the floor. I slept there for the rest of the night. I remember waking up the next morning 
I felt better. Everything was cleaned up. But the thing is, I'd, I don't remember cleaning anything up. So I hadn't done anything really, right? Well, I had done something, and this is very important in the context of this psalm. I had cried out. Now, if I could pin the entire message of this psalm in one verse, I think it would be verse 6 here, which says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. It also answers our question of where we are to turn. You know, when Saul's behind us and Achish is in front of us, we have nowhere else to turn. Where are we going to turn? Well, it's pretty clear where David turned. He turned to the Lord. He sought the Lord, and, he, and the Lord answered him. And it worked out for him, didn't it? Isn't it also interesting what David says in verse 5, we're going up again, considering the historical context. He says, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And you're saying, wait a minute now. Didn't he escape King Achish by pretending that he was a madman? I mean, he feigned insanity. He let... He let the spit run down his face and his beard. And yet he has the wherewithal to say, those to who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. I think that David realizes that ultimately it doesn't matter what troubles find him. So it's an irony here. I mean, he's saying, I wasn't ashamed even though I looked ridiculous. I mean... He realizes that it's, uh, it's, you never have to be ashamed when you're trusting the Lord because the Lord, he knows, will deliver him. And I think Brendan has a comment at this point. Well, you've hit it mostly, but um, I think I got this maybe from Calvin, but the, the word ashamed there is a little bit of Hebrew wordplay, and it's got two meanings. The first is ashamed, like embarrassed, as we would think of the word. But in Hebrew, the word also means let down. So the righteous shall never be let down. I think that's a cool double meaning. And we can find, find that in this psalm. I think it's also interesting how David describes himself in verse 6, as we're moving back there again. This poor man cried. He addresses himself now in the third person. He's been speaking in the first person up to this point. He says... This poor man cried. And you might be thinking, poor man? I mean, what are you talking about, David? You're not a poor man. I mean, this is the man who killed Goliath. This is the man, I mean, they're saying Saul killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. I mean, this is a celebrity. You don't know what you're talking about, David. Don't give me any of this poor man stuff. I think it's actually a very profound statement because David recognizes that he's a poor man without the Lord. He's helpless without God's power. I mean, isn't that what we learn in the story of David and Goliath? I mean, it wasn't David who was able to kill Goliath. It was David, through the help of the Lord, who could do it. 
This also reminds me, this verse 6 reminds me of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, which he opens by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, Blessed are those who recognize they are in need of God's help. Blessed are those who seek the Lord. Blessed is that poor man who cries out to God when he is in trouble. And now you might be saying, okay, wait a minute now. I mean, sure, maybe God answered David when he cried. When, when he cried. But, I mean, this is David. He's, this is a man after God's own heart, right? But when I pray, when I cry out, I don't get any answers to my prayers. Let me just say that this is a difficult subject for human beings to deal with, I think, because of our great deficiency of knowledge on the subject. We need to be careful and heed the words written in Job chapter 38, which say, who is this that darkens counsel by words without, and it's not respect, it's not reverence, which you might expect, words without knowledge. God's first challenge to the man was, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You're ignorant on the subject of my counsel. And so we must be very careful when we make claims like these that are contrary to the word of God. Claims like, God simply doesn't answer my prayer. But still the question arises and we can't escape it. Why does it seem like God doesn't answer my prayers? Is David's promise void? I mean, he says in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you are saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The NIV says they lack nothing. Is this void? Well, let's, let's first observe the nature of the literature that we're dealing with and notice, you know, this is not a sweeping guarantee from David that God will always heed our requests no matter what. I think that would be that would be a misunderstanding of who God is. R.C. Sproul once said that prayer is not magic. God is not a celestial bellhop ready at our beck and call to satisfy our every whim. I think that would be a mistake to excavate this from this passage. I think it would be a mistake in exegesis to try to read absolute promises like this into poetic hymns such as this, where obviously David is he's very excited and everything, you know. But still, this is inspired him in a truthful statement, nonetheless, that God will answer our cries. So what's the problem? Well, Alistair Begg so cleverly notes that perhaps the reason we don't get answers to our cries is because we're too proud to cry. And so we're too proud to pray, so God doesn't answer us. And God doesn't answer our prayers, so we stop praying. And then we're stuck in a vicious circle. And how are we going to get out of it? Well, I think that's why it's so important that David tells us this poor man cried. He humbled himself. So let me ask you this. When you prayed to the Lord, and he apparently didn't answer you, maybe you didn't really cry. Maybe you didn't really cry out as a poor, humble man or woman would do. Let's say 
Let's say a child is laying on the couch with a stomach bug again, and he's moaning and groaning in pain. He's crying out for pity and love from his mother because he's in such pain. And then his mother asks him, what can I do to alleviate your pain? And he says, you know, go get me a chocolate bar. Uh, that's really what I need right now. And then his mother goes and gets him the chocolate bar and gives it. I mean, that's ridiculous. We would never expect a good mother or father to answer that kind of request. But oftentimes, we treat God like, like he should do that. But then in reply to this, you might say, no, no, no. No, I've been praying, like truly praying, every day in good faith to the Lord. I've been humbling myself. I've been on my knees. I'm saying, thy will be done as a bookend to my prayers. I've been truly crying out to the Lord. Well, if that's the case, then I'll say this. Maybe, maybe God is answering your prayer, or maybe he will answer your prayer. You see, we read in Second Peter that to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. He doesn't experience time like we do. So maybe it's the case that he is in the process of answering your prayer, but you know, maybe it's taking a few years or even a few decades. If this isn't helpful, let me go back again to an analogy of a child laying sick in his bed. Now, for this scenario, let's also say that before he went to bed, his mother knew of his sickness. So she knows he's not feeling well. Now let's say the child cries out in the night and his mom gets up to help him. But on the way, she stops by the medicine cabinet and you know, to grab a treatment. From, her, from the child's perspective, it's been you know, three minutes and she isn't there yet. All the child knows is that his mom isn't there. So for, to his perspective, he thinks that she hasn't answered his call or even hasn't heard him. Maybe it'll only take three minutes for God to answer our cries. You know, until we go back to what Peter said about the Lord. And then we realize that maybe for the Lord, three minutes is 10 or 20 years of your life. And so we get impatient with the Lord. And you might be getting impatient with me when you realize we're only, we only made it through seven verses and we're already halfway, <laughs> half an hour in. So I'll tackle this next section quickly. I mean, I think we could have sermons and sermons on every single verse here. Anyway. This next section, verse 8 through 10, basically uh, David is telling us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So David, so far, he's expressed his love for God. He's explained his love for God. And now he asks us to join him in entering into a relationship with him. Now, I can't say whether or not, we can only speculate on this, whether or not David knew that what he said here in verse 8 will be echoed later on by Jesus. But I immediately, immediately when I come to this verse, I can't help but think of John chapter 6, in which Jesus describes himself 
as the bread of life and somewhat strangely commands us to eat of him. Jesus says this in John 6, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and never and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, of course, everything he said here is metaphorical, except, of course, that last sentence, and that's very important. He did as he said he would. He gave his flesh for the life of the world. Not only that, but he also gave us a practice of communion or the Lord's Supper. So as we might remember these words in Psalm 34, where David alerts us to the deep importance of building a strong personal relationship with the Lord. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. And I'll end it there and toss it back to Brendan. A lot of weighty themes. So as we switch to the back half of this psalm, I want to bring up another. Um, I want to introduce the theme of the sufferings or the afflictions of the righteous. That's what Calvin focuses on in his commentary on this psalm. And if it wasn't derivative, I would just read you his commentary. It's quite good. But anyway, I think this psalm kind of expands outward where I'm picking up in verse 11. Um, David switches from talking about the about the eye, and he begins talking about the righteous, the collective righteous. Um, as Daniel mentioned, he introduces this earlier, and all the way back in verse 2, take a look there with me. In verse 2 he says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. This is a psalm for the humble to hear and to join in with. And I think the, the humble... Um, experience affliction. So I want to begin by stating, as we concluded last year, after studying Elihu's wise counsel in Job, that suffering is often an inscrutable matter that we must leave for God's providence. Sometimes we must bow our head and just trust alongside Elihu that suffering is redeemed through suffering, as he says. God is God, we are not. But David is also saying here that the affliction the righteous experience are sometimes intended to display God's power and our lack of power as we are raised and rescued from the affliction. Um, both the world and we ourselves see this as it happens. We are, we are powerless and we must receive our salvation from elsewhere. Um, Calvin says, regarding verse 18, and I'll get there in a bit, that by this means, that is, by the persisting afflictions that the righteous experience, God's power shines forth more clearly when he raises us, raises us up again from the grave. Calvin continues, If the righteous were exempted from every kind of trial, their faith would languish, they would cease to call upon God, and their piety would remain hidden and unknown. Which reminds me of the book of James, but in sum, our afflictions here show God's power to us and to the world 
as we are rescued from them. So this is the lens I want to use to look at the rest of this psalm. And I'm a poet and a literature major, so I'm approaching this as a poem. So let me briefly sketch the psalm's poetic structure for you, and draw a couple conclusions from that, and then get you talking. Let me hear from you guys on this, um, about God's promises. First, poetic structure. This psalm is an acrostic. It's a bit of a sloppy one, all right? He skips a letter, um, ends early. But I want to suggest that David might be using the acrostic form here to communicate totality. If God's power and our frailty is the point of this psalm, and if God is the alpha and the omega, um, an acrostic is a natural choice to communicate that formally. It might be a bit of a stretch, but I like it. But also, I want to say this, the acrostic form explains why this psalm seems to topically jump around a bit. Um, but I want to suggest, again, that this psalm is a unified progression. So stick with me. We're going to talk about each stanza in turn. Um, I want to briefly summarize what Daniel said. Verses 1 through 3 are a sort of prologue where David invites others to join him in blessing the Lord. Verses 4 through 7 then draw some conclusions about God's protection and salvation of the righteous from David's past tense first person experience. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. Then verses 8 to 10 switch to present tense and they call for the saints to fear the Lord because of the tangible um, sensory examples of his protection. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And David has tasted and seen this by his salvation from what Calvin says is the most dangerous experience he, he has while he's um, away from Israel. So, to verse 11. Um, stand, the, the next stanza, verses 11 through 14, detour a little bit. They switch to a section of wisdom literature. Um, Solomon writes in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So, David's promise here in verse 11, to teach his children the fear of the Lord signals an entry into a wisdom section. Then, um, David asks this cryptic rhetorical question, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So I think David's assuming we all want to live a while, right? It's, his, it's the motivation for wanting to live a while that bugs him. We're wicked, we're greedy, we're unrighteous. So we don't want to live a while that we may see good. Thus, in the next couple verses after that, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David says here, wisdom is making this choice to turn from evil and to do good to seek peace and pursue it. This leads us into the next stanza, which is verses um, 15 through 19 by my calculus. I'm switching it up a bit um, from the ESV. But verses 15 through 19 here are thematically about like the current vigilant protection that the Lord has um, over the righteous and his relationship with them. Again, David's broadened this from merely talking about himself to talking about the righteous. In this present evil age, he says, the, the righteous are oppressed and afflicted. I want to I bring out this move that David makes here and elsewhere. Even when things look super bleak for him, he's still happy to pray that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Again, if I was chased out of my own kingdom and had to go to like my worst enemy to hang out, 
Um, this wouldn't be the first thing that came to my mind, <laughs> all right? Especially present tense. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Um, delivers or saves shows up so many times in this psalm and others like it. Wouldn't be the first thing that came to my mind if I was hiding in a cave having to write this. He also says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's in exile from his home. All right, contrast this present tense to verses 21 through 22. I'm going to skip verse 20 for a second. In verses 21 and 22, David switches to future tense. He says, those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Contrast that to the next verse. None of those who take refuge in him, the righteous, will be condemned. There's, there's like an eschatological already not yet sense to these promises. David has confidence that the Lord will fulfill these promises to save the righteous and condemn the wicked, but this will be done in his providential timing. Some of that may occur in this life, as we've been talking about, as David experienced when he was saved from Achish by the Lord. But as Calvin notes, most of this salvation occurs when we are exalted in our resurrection. All right, notice the word redeemed in verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. Um, Oxford Dictionary defines redeeming as gaining or regaining possession of something in exchange for payment. So, to quote Calvin again, by the word redeem in verse 22, there is expressed a kind of preservation which is repugnant to the flesh. For it is necessary that we should first be adjudged or doomed to death before God should appear as our redeemer. Basically, to be redeemed, we must acknowledge that we, that we need a savior. So, um, switch back to verse 20. This may be a bit of a stretch here, but um, I think this verse is pivotal given that the tense shift from present to future tense happens in this verse. And John 19.36 quotes this, recording of the crucifixion that for these things, that is um, the details of Christ's death, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Here, verse 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's talking about the righteous in context. But this psalm says just after that, that the saints need a redeemer to be saved, to desire good and righteousness. We need a redeemer. Thus, I think it's pretty clear that this phrase receives its fulfillment in Christ as the example, as the prime example of the righteous man through which the Lord redeems the life of his servants. All right, that's my brief sketch of the poetic structure of this psalm. Do you have any questions or comments about this before I move on? Just a couple minutes here. Yeah, Mom. Um, well, I know because it says at the bottom, but... <laughs> Each verse begins with uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? All right, good. Um, after this, I want to pan outward and get your voices in the room here to talking about the Psalms theology. Um, according to my Bible class at Cedarville, the Old Testament's primary innovation, its primary distinction from other religions at the time, was that God wanted a personal relationship with the individual. 
right. um, as Rene Girard and others have noted, one point of the 10th commandment is that God cares about both your actions and your desires. Right? Do not steal. Oh, and do not even want to steal. That's also bad. So more than that, God also wants to talk to the individual. Um, the great theologian Bono calls Jeremiah, <laughs> calls Jeremiah 33.3 God's telephone number. I like this. Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. Um, I think the Psalms are inspired prayers based on this promise and on assurances about God that he gives us elsewhere in the scriptures. This idea of calling on God is even more explicit in Psalm 56, the second psalm, um, inspired by the same narrow escape from Achish. There, David says, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. And God, whose word I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise in God I trust, I shall not be afraid what can man do to me. So with that in mind, I, I want your help here in drawing out some of the places of this word that David praises, that, that give David confidence to pray what he does in Psalm 34. Um, again, um, I, I want us to bring up some scriptures here that give us confidence that God will fulfill his promises of salvation. As Daniel mentioned, we have even more of God's word than David did, so I want us to use all of it. And those of you who've spent more time in this book than I have, please, what scriptures give you confidence that God will do what he says? What are some places that you look to for assurance and for comfort? I'll let you think about that. I'll start us off. Um, courtesy of Pastor Atkinson last week. This is the Lord ad Lord's attitude toward his promises from Ezekiel 36, 36. Then the nations that are, that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. I love that. What does it say? I will protect you with my righteous right hand. Yes. <laughs> Good. Thank you. What verses give you comfort these days?
God's promise to us? What others? Got a couple minutes here. with you wherever you go. Yeah, what can man do to me, David says. Do not be afraid. Okay, they know. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth is probably not what would be going through my head either as I was hiding. shall find rest. Um, This is Psalm 40, verse 3. Another one from David. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Um, These are the promises that if you go forward this week and remember our Sunday school, meditate on these promises. The Lord has said these things in his word and they will come to pass. This is what gives David comfort and confidence to pray what he says in the Psalms and how much more us coming in the church age with a lot more of God's word to meditate on, to seek confidence from. Um, We're running out of time, but I would like now to transition to a song based on Psalm 34. And I want us to treat this as a prayer. Um, The Psalms are meant to be prayed. They are prayers, 
And I want us to use this as our closing prayer today.